From Nashville, Tennessee, Southwestern Family of Companies welcomes you to the Action Catalyst. Each week, we share insights and inspiration for movers and shakers in the world of business. Our goal is to help you increase your self-discipline, overcome procrastination, and help you to take action on all the things that really matter. You are about to hear from the chief legal counsel who of American Airlines who, who had that position on 9-11 during September 11th when the terrorist attacks um, hit the United States. And you're going to hear about the decisions that happened behind the scenes and also what that caused over the next 12 years for American and how this person and their team worked through it. And it's a pretty incredible story of ups and downs. And that is the theme of the show today is how to make difficult decisions in times of turbulence. And it's a very, very rare perspective to get to hear from somebody who is in such an influential position during such a critical time in our country. And then also all of the aftermath that resulted that you probably don't know about and haven't heard, at least I hadn't heard about, related to that. And then what we're going to talk about, though, at the end is basically what can we do as leaders? What can you do as a leader to make better decisions in your personal life, in your professional life, with the people that you lead, and for yourself? And we got a nine-point checklist of nine steps that will hopefully help take some of what comes out of this interview that you're about to hear, which is really a compelling and amazing story, and put it into a framework that will hopefully help you take action and alter the way a little bit, perhaps, of the way that you make decisions so that you can make better decisions for yourself, for your family, and for the teams that you are around. So making difficult decisions in times of turbulence. We'll get started just after this message. This episode is sponsored by Southwestern Coaching. Southwestern Coaching has helped over 11,000 people increase their incomes by over 25% on average. As a successful salesperson, you know the importance of increasing your sales, but sometimes you might just need a little extra push and accountability to meet your goals and grow your business. Southwestern Coaching will help you increase your income through one-on-one sales and leadership coaching tailored specifically to your needs. Together, we will elevate sales. To schedule your free one-on-one business action planning session with a Southwestern Coach, go to www.southwesternconsulting.com forward slash action catalyst. So if you are an airline traveler, then you know that uh, th- things, the world changed uh, on 9-11, right? And following the, the 12 years of the terrorist attacks of 9-11, the world changed in a lot of ways. And one of the, the drastic places and ways that it changed was through travel. And who you are about to hear from is a newer friend of mine. Uh, he's the author of a book and his name is Gary Kennedy. And his book is called 12 Years of of Turbulence, The Inside Story of American Airlines' Battle for Survival. And so this is coming off of uh, Flight 587 and 9-11. And here you are hearing from the former chief lawyer is what is the role that Gary played um, for the 12 years following this. And I am an executive platinum American Airlines flyer, as is my wife. And so we have been American Airlines people for a long time. And so we couldn't, we couldn't resist a chance. So Gary, thanks for being here. 
Well, thank you so much. And let me say on behalf of the company, thank you and your wife for, for flying so much on American. That's the kind of business they need. <laughs> well, I appreciate that. Uh, although you don't have to say it anymore. You don't work there anymore, right? <laughs> <That's> right. <laughs> um, so can you take me, before we talk about, I know the book really focuses on the aftermath of, of 9-11, which I think there's going to be lots of business lessons here for the entrepreneurs and the leaders that listen to this show about what happens when you know, through, through no fault of your own, you are faced with tremendous, you know, challenges and obstacles. But before we dive into that, can you just take me to the day? Um, what happened like as, as a, as a, as a, as the chief lawyer and somebody who was behind the scenes, what was going on? Like what happened? How, what happened in like those immediate, like 12 hours? Can you just like tell us anything about that? Yes, and let me start actually just back it up a little bit by what happened actually first thing that morning at, at really 7.15 a.m. Central Time. Yeah. What a lot of people don't realize is that one of our flight attendants on Flight 11 that departed Boston on its way to Los Angeles was in the rear of the aircraft that day, and she actually placed a cell phone call. She used her cell phone call to call a reservation center in Raleigh, North Carolina. And that call was immediately patched through to our system operation control center in Dallas-Fort Worth. And this flight attendant, she told the story of that three men had stabbed two of the flight attendants, had killed one of the first-class passengers, and then had, had made their way into the cockpit. That was the first confirmation that we had of the actual events that were occurring on board that aircraft. Wow. And she, was on, she remained on that phone call of course, until that aircraft then struck the World Trade Center. And so that was the tragic, tragic beginning for American Airlines of the events that unfolded that day. Wow. So 7.15 a.m., you got that call and she was there and, and, and then it happens. And so in the minutes, I mean, this is just gut-wrenching to hear. I mean, in the, in the minutes following that, I mean, I have to imagine it was just shock, pandemonium, chaos. I mean, what, what was going on like corporately? Well, you know, interestingly, because the airline is designed in a way that anticipates um, difficulties given the nature of the business, which is flying people around the world every day, the professionals in our operations center, and starting with our CEO on down the list, they handle emergencies like this in a really quite a calm, collected way. This was extraordinary under any set of circumstances, something we had never experienced but nevertheless, the professionalism of the people who were then tracking the flights, because the first concern was for the rest of our passengers in the air. We didn't know, is this involving one plane, 10 planes, 20? And so a very important decision was made about grounding the entire American Airlines fleet, which was actually done, and that decision made before the FAA even made that decision. And we recount that in the book about how this unfolded with the CEO and the chief operating officer at that time and how that played out. Wow. And that has to be, I mean, that, that has to be just that one decision alone is million, has to be millions of dollars to ground all flights immediately. And you don't, at that point, you didn't really have any indication of whether or not there was anything else happening, but that was a decision that was made quickly. Exactly. And that's why that decision was so difficult because if you take all those those, you know, hundreds of aircraft in the air at one time and the enormity of grounding all those aircraft and putting all the aircraft in the air as well on the deck as quickly as possible, that was a decision that had never been made before and has likely will never be made again. It was an extraordinary decision to make. 
Well, and as it turns out, it was it was the right decision because there was multiple things that were happening, and um, that's 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 interesting. So, how did they? I mean, that's an expensive decision in the middle of chaos. Um, it's a it's a quick decision. How like how did that come about? I mean, there there had to be at least a thought of going. Gosh, you know, I mean, is that is that the right thing to do? I mean, but but that was that a was that a pretty easy decision or what happened? Not an easy decision, but the two people who really made that decision, which were the CEO and the chief operating officer, they made that decision. It took them about, you know, just a very short number of minutes to make that decision. Once they realized what was happening, at least with the one aircraft, and then we got a notice that we think there was a second aircraft involved, then found out that perhaps another airline was involved, in this case, United. It came together so quickly, they said, okay, we don't know what's going on here, but we've got to protect people. We've got to get things on the deck. And they made that decision. Then interestingly, they called, they received a phone call from the FAA, Jane Garvey, who was then um, in charge of, of that portion of the FAA. And they had a conversation saying, what do you think we, the FAA, ought to do? And our CEO, Don Cardi, said, it's your decision. But if it were me to make that decision, I'd ground the entire United States commercial wow. airline network immediately. Wow. Wow. So, so how did you know... Like to me, when I, I remember exactly where I was, I think, I think many people remember where they were on 9-11. You know, when I watched the first airplane, you know, I was watching the, the really the replays of the first airplane that, that was crashing into the World Trade Center. I never even had the thought that there were, uh, like it never even crossed my mind that there other planes could be involved. You know, like to me, it was over it, and it was horrible, but it was like it was over. How did you guys know or think or what happened that caused you to go, hey, this, is, this may not be it. There may be, there may be more things going on. We started getting an indication that another one of our aircraft wasn't responding. Um, and that gave us a clue that there might be a second aircraft involved. And then, of course, as I said, we heard about potential uh, another airline who had a similar kind of issue. And so that sort of raised those concerns that this may be a much larger difficulty than what we first imagined. Right. Yeah. And that was, yeah, I think there was United 93 and there was, there was, uh, there was a yeah, two United aircraft. That's right. Right. Um, so, okay. So, so talk to me about September 12th. Okay. So September 11th is just got, I mean, I mean, I have to think that was just crazy, you know, a whole range of emotions what happens on September 12th and like the, uh, the next few weeks? I mean, people, I remember people, so I'm a, uh, an author, I mean, like you, an author and a speaker and I speak and I remember speakers I, I, that were canceling trips and, and people were shutting down their conventions because they, they didn't want people to get on airplanes. Like what, what was your perspective on those weeks after? Yeah, no, that's exactly, you're right. What happened uh, first, the aviation system itself was shut down for three or four days entirely. And then when it reopened, First of all, aircraft weren't in the right place and the crews weren't in the right place. And people generally simply did not trust that they could fly and fly safely. And so we were flying around many kind of empty planes once we started up again as people were reticent to get back in the air. And when that happens in a company like ours, where you need that cash every single day, it so quickly we start to lose first, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars and then billions of dollars. By the fourth quarter of 2002, we lost, just in that one quarter alone, American Airlines lost a billion dollars in that one quarter, so over $30 million oh a day. 
And by by then, we were largely insolvent, and a and not only American, but other airlines were ready to collapse as a result directly not only of nine eleven, but then that loss of the passenger traffic going forward and a a worsening economy, and so the entire system was just in really in shambles. So this is one basically uh, after a full year. It was it was it was thirty million dollars a day. You said so. It was billions of dollars. Yes, that's right. And which is why, by two thousand three, January two thousand three, American Airlines was working around the clock, and I was then at that time general counsel of the airline, working around the clock to prepare to file for bankruptcy because we had run out of options. And, and I mean, what what does that even look like? I mean, how do you even have for a a, a company the size of American Airlines and the, the with the infrastructure and the like? What does a bankruptcy at that scale even look like? Like, I, I mean, I don't. Yeah, it, it, if we if we had filed at that time, it would have been the world's largest um, uh, airline bankruptcy. And what happened was. We just narrowly escaped in 2003 the filing of the bankruptcy. I stood in the courthouse steps twice ready to file, but we received concessions from our employees worth about $2 billion a year that saved us temporarily from having to file for bankruptcy. And then- What does that mean? Wait, what does that mean? We actually said, look, we've got two choices. We can either file for bankruptcy or if you employees will give us, by way of wage concessions and work rule concessions, something that might mirror about what we might get in bankruptcy, then rather than being in this long bankruptcy process, we can just take care of it overnight. And so our unions and our employees voted to say, okay, we will reluctantly give you these concessions if you can keep this company out of bankruptcy because of all the bad things that can happen to employees in a company if they file for bankruptcy. So in 2003, at least, we got those concessions and avoided the filing of bankruptcy. But that's wow. what was sort of the beginning of the very difficult story of what happened after that for the next eight years. Gotcha. So, but, but the employees basically made some decisions for some short-term sacrifices to kind of keep the company afloat. Yes. And then... And then well, that's, I mean, that's amazing. I mean, you never, you don't hear that part of the story. And, and then, and so then, so then walk us through, walk us through a little bit here. I mean, I know we're trying to cover 12 years in about eight minutes, but like, <laughs> to, yeah. and that's why, I mean, the book again, for those of you that it's called 12 Years of Turbulence. This is the inside story of American Airlines battle for survival. Gary Kennedy is, is who I'm talking with right now, who's the former chief lawyer for American Airlines during this whole time. So, so now wh- give me like the high level overview of what happens the next like four or five years. Yes, the next four or five years, we try to pull American Airlines back from the edge of the cliff one step at a time to try to repair the financial situation at the company. And we make some progress. But the problem is, once again, adversity hits the company in lots of ways. We had, of course, fuel prices that ran up to $150 a barrel. And that became our largest single expense and something we simply could not um, handle long-term. On top of that, as we all recall, in 2008 was the Great Recession. And the Great Recession brought tremendous financial turmoil. And we used to joke at the airline, the only thing missing in our list of crises every day was an infestation of locusts because we got faced with one problem after another. Finally, leading in 2011 to the most awful decision we thought we'd be faced with, which was, once again, I was preparing papers 
and had a team of people involved to actually then file for bankruptcy this time in 2011. That is just, I mean, that is just crazy. I mean, it was such a big, you know, you think about it, the event 9-11 from how it affected the world stage, but then thinking about, you know, a company and that's so directly affected by, because it, it was a domino effect that started to affect all diff, all these different industries, but it really is, you know, from a business standpoint, hit you guys. Now you you have all of this. So, so, so when did it, so what happened in 2011? How did you come out of bankruptcy there? So what happened is in 2011, uh, unlike what happened in 2003, when it was a very public process, we said either we get these concessions or we'll file for bankruptcy. This time around, we did it secretly because we knew of the, the implications of people know you're going to file. They start demanding cash you know, payments and, and things become more difficult. We then secretly prepared to file for bankruptcy. We knew we needed new contracts with our employees, our labor unions, they, we couldn't get those. It just wasn't happening. We were running out of time. We were running at a deficit um, compared to all the other airlines who had lower labor costs, were making money, had redone their balance sheets. So when we filed, and when we filed, I made a promise to our board of directors and our CEO that we would get into bankruptcy, would do it quickly and efficiently, and get back out on the other end. And then that didn't happen either because we ran into further difficulties one of which was, which is just n- never happens. Our employees decided it would be a good idea if American Airlines merged with U.S. Airways and U.S. Airways desperately wanted to merge with our company. And we said, no, bad idea. Don't do it during bankruptcy. Let us repair the company and then we'll consider merger. Yeah. Well, everyone just continued to push for it to the point that we realized, okay, this might actually add a lot of value to this company. And we determined, okay, let's merge with U.S. Airways. And as we went down that path, we finally, on Valentine's Day 2013, we announced a merger with U.S. Airways. And again, I had promised our board of directors, I said, if we do this, we will get the Department of Justice, the United States government, to approve this merger. we, We can get this done. And to my great chagrin and great disappointment, the United States government, the Department of Justice, sued American Airlines and U.S. Airways to block that merger. And that was really one of the worst days for me professionally, the company, when I realized I, was, I had arrived at the office. I was on the, the third store. I used to always walk up the stairs to my office on the sixth floor. Nice. And when I got to the third floor, I got a message, just four words. They are filing today. And I had to continue up those stairs and walk into the CEO's office and say, sorry, boss you know, they have sued to block this transaction. And that was, that was not a good day at the office. Wow. So that was because of the anti, um, or yes, the, the, the concerned over antitrust, whether or not antitrust, that yeah. combination would be harmful to consumers. And the way the, 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 the government fashioned that lawsuit, it gave little room for settlement because they, just, they simply said, there's too many big airlines, too few big airlines will be left if we allow this to go forward. Right. Even though they allowed other mergers to go forward, and we simply cannot, um, in their view, harm consumers by allowing this merger to go through. So then you guys, but somehow you won. I mean, I remember this. I remember this whole merger, and now suddenly, suddenly, I was flying instead of I live in Nashville. Instead of going to Dallas every day, I was going to Charlotte every day, and I was like running to make these tight connections in Charlotte. So, so somehow you guys made it through that. So did you just win the case, or did they dismiss it, or? Well, what happened was that um, 
we had said, look, there's got to be a way to settle this rather than running the risk of taking this to trial. And the state of Texas had joined in this litigation. And we chipped that away at one, one issue at a time. The first thing we did is we tried to find a way to settle it with the state of Texas. And we did. We met with Governor, then Attorney General Greg Abbott, and we found a way to settle it with the state of Texas. We then went to the, 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 the um, United States government and we said, okay, let's, what do you really need to make this problem go away? And we tried several different approaches and they didn't like any of them. We finally brought yet another approach to them about giving away certain big sets of assets at certain airports. And they said, okay, I think we might have something we could work with here. Did they just open the door just a little bit? And I said, if they've opened that door, it is time for us to run through that door as quickly and as hard as we can. So we kept pushing it and finally found a basket of assets that they said, okay, we think we can work with this and find a way to get rid of this lawsuit. Amazing. So you got rid of the lawsuit, then you announced this merger. Then it was like, I remember it was a more, it was a little bit more chaos. It was like people didn't, you know, the U S airways people didn't know the American process and vice versa. And it's like, suddenly we're all, you know, I remember like, you know, the upgrade lists and stuff were just crazy, but somehow you went from that to the merger takes place. And then, and then American airlines rolls out a whole new fleet of planes. They upgrade everything all the admirals clubs get upgraded. There's new, you know, in all, you know, Dallas and San Francisco, and they have all new like terminal check-in processes and state-of-the-art technology. So, um, so somewhere you guys turn the corner. Yes. And, and today American Airlines is first, not only the world's largest airline, which is terrific, but also profitable airline. It is stable and the, some of the, the foundation, even when we were, we were in our most darkest days, we laid the foundation for the future. For example, the aircraft order you talk about, we actually placed that aircraft order, which was the largest order for commercial aircraft in U.S. history at that time, about three months before we filed for bankruptcy, realizing that we needed to somehow provide for the future. And now those aircraft are arriving because it takes a long time to get aircraft into the system. And if you've noticed, as you travel on American, it's brand new planes. Yeah. It is, it is the, the company's just really doing very, very well. So, oh my gosh. So we're out of time and I can't, I was like, oh my gosh, we recovered. So, so 12 years uh, of turbulence, that is what they call the, the, the name of the book is. So you can sort of check it out and hear the full story. Gary, uh, I have one more question for you. Before I do that, where do you want people to go to, if they want to connect with you or follow you? I mean, obviously sure. they can read the book I, anywhere, but. Yes. Uh, well, we have our website, which is 12yearsofturbulence.com. Okay. And, and that's a terrific place to connect with us. The book, of course, is available um, online at all the major online sites and also re- in retail stores a- around the country. And we're excited for people to read the story because it really is this, this inside story that you don't get often about what really happened behind the scenes at American Airlines. So last question for you. The, you know, there's a lot of people out there listening who are they, they might be CEOs of large companies. A lot of people listening that would be like, you know, senior managers, got a lot of entrepreneurs who listen to this show or intrapreneurs that they manage an organization. Um, having come through this and, you know, now being out the other side of it, what do you think is the biggest thing that you learned that you would be able to translate in terms of advice to somebody who's a small business owner or a division manager or an entrepreneur or a team leader 
who has an organization who has been hit, maybe not by something like 9-11, but hit with challenges, obstacles, roadblocks through no fault of their own that just kind of, you know, showed up. And now they're having to deal with the turmoil. Like, I guess, what would be the last, you know, thing you would say to them? I would say a couple of things. I would say that in the darkest days when things just really look bad, what we did is we said, okay, it's one step at a time. We can't solve these problems overnight. We can't attack them all at the same time. Let's figure out what we need to do today, what we need to do tomorrow, and then think about that larger plan. And our CEO at that time had a very interesting thing that he used to say as one crisis would hit us after another. He would say, we may be disappointed, but we are not discouraged. And that's exactly what we had to do. We had to say, okay, another disappointment, but let's keep going at it and we will find a way through this mess. And it worked. Hmm. I love it. Uh, Gary Kennedy, my friends, 12 years of turbulence. Uh, Gary, just, you know, thank you for sharing the story and uh, thank you to yourself and all the, the people who played a role on that, you know, day in our history to make decisions that uh, hopefully minimize the, the, the loss that we all experienced. And, uh, you know, as an American flyer, I'm glad American has come through it all and, and, and it has all worked out. And uh, we wish you the very best, my friend. Well, thank you so much. Thank you. Whoa. I mean, can you imagine being in that scenario? I mean, working for one of the airlines on 9-11 and you turn on the TV and you see this all happening and people are trying to find information. Nobody knows what is happening. And being, being thrust into a moment of life and death on a massive scale with limited information, having to make decisions in a split second. And as I was processing and thinking about the interview with Gary, I was trying to figure out exactly how to parallel this in my own life and in, and in your life, right? Because most of us will probably never be in a place where we're making decisions like that. I mean, maybe if you are part of the government or if you're in the military or you know maybe if you're running a company or a hospital or something i suppose but all of us will have to make difficult decisions with limited information at some point in our lives and if you think about the decisions that they made over the 12 years, which is the course of the time frame of this book and this, this whole journey, immediately there was the decision to ground all planes, right? So that's a big decision that costs millions of dollars. Then there was the decision by the employees later to keep the company alive. And that was an interesting decision to me because you had the the employees really were in the 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 ones holding the cards there and so that was an interesting decision then they made the decision to merge with US Air which was really wild and given what US Air was experiencing and what American was still trying to recover from that was a a bold decision it seems like from the limited information that we we have but then there was also the decision to give up the assets to make that lawsuit go away and then Another one to me, and I was just you know reviewing and, and thinking back over that conversation, is this decision to place 
an order for an entirely new fleet of planes three years in advance while they're you know basically on the brink of bankruptcy and still trying to figure everything out and and that is a fascinating decision right because you have to order those planes so far in advance that was a, a, a took a lot of faith and courage and probably a little bit of craziness and anyways again those are probably not the types of decisions that you or I will ever have to make but I feel confident saying that we will have to make decisions about difficult things with limited information. And so when I was just processing this, as I do with every episode, right, I'm listening to it the same way you are. I'm listening to the conversation and I'm trying to understand, okay, what does this mean for me? What do I have to learn from this? How can I apply this to to my life and to our business at Southwestern Consulting? And what I was started thinking through is I said, you know, it would be handy to put together a checklist of steps to take whenever you are making difficult decisions. And so that's what I did. I, I just whipped up this, this nine-point checklist for making difficult decisions in times of turbulence, just going along with this theme of what Gary's book and this story is all about. And I was thinking through my life and places where I've made good decisions and thinking back to uh, places where I've also made bad decisions, made the wrong decision. And then thinking through some of our coaching clients and, and watching how they evaluate decisions. And you know some of our consulting clients run very, very large organizations. And I was just trying to think about the ones that make great decisions and seem to win consistently. There is some, some themes that these, these folks do. And so I just thought, hey, let me put together a little checklist for myself. And I'm going to share it with you here of this nine-point checklist for making difficult decisions in times of turbulence. Okay, this is, this is actually basically in a sequential. These are like steps. So these are potentially sequential steps that you would take. So number one, the number one thing, the first thing that you do when you realize that you have a difficult decision to make is you have to pause for perspective. You have to pause for perspective. Now, I realize there are, there are moments like what Gary was describing here. And also this past weekend, I was at an event um, called Lead Like Jesus with Ken Blanchard. And one of the other speakers there was Condoleezza Rice, the former Secretary of State, among many, many other things. And Denver University alum, just like me, DU alum. Shout out for Denver University. And listening to her talk about some of the things that she was going through during, you know, she was there during 9-11. So she was there in the White House. So it's sort of interesting to hear it from her perspective this weekend. And also in the same, you know, within the same couple of weeks, hear this, have this interview with Gary and hear it from the airline's perspective, the same event of recounting 9-11. And I think in that moment, you know, something like 9-11, there's not a lot of time right? There is not a lot of time, but it still seems like you have to pause even for a split second and you have to make a faith 
decision. You have to choose to say, I don't know how and I don't understand, but I believe that somehow this is all going to work out. One of the things that I learned at Southwestern when I was in college and you know I was selling educational kids books door to door and they train you in sales school and every Sunday you have these Sunday meetings and they train you on all this different type of stuff. And one of the things they used to always say is you have to remember that it's never as bad as it sounds or as good as it seems. When 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 a big moment hits, whether it's a huge celebration or this huge failure or tragedy, now it's it's hard to say that. I want to I want to be careful about how we say this in relation to tragedy because very often tragedies are are very horrible and horrendous. Nine eleven certainly being one of those. But in our minds, our minds have this way of of making things even worse than they really are, and that we if we don't get control. Of our, of our mind, of our attitude, of our creativity, our creativity will launch and, and immediately run off and you know amplify things and make it worse and, and come up with all different types of worst case scenarios and conspiracy theories. And, and we, we, we take an isolated instance and we make it pervasive and we make it permanent. And that is really dangerous because it, it clouds your thinking. And in these moments when you need to make critical decisions in difficult times, you have to do your best to think clearly, at least on some level. And that's what I think you're going to see this, this nine-step checklist here. A lot of it is about just ideas to help you evaluate things as clear as possible in intense, often intense emotional situations, often where there is not a lot of time. And so what you're trying to do here is you're just pausing for perspective. You're, you're not making light of tragedy or difficulty or any of that, you're just trying to logically recenter for a second. And one of the things that I think helps you do that is this this faith decision. It is one of the seven key distinctions that ultra performers make that we talk about and take the stairs because they say, I don't understand. I don't like this. I don't, I don't know what's going on. This seems horrible, but I'm going to choose to believe that somehow this is all going to be okay. Somehow this is all going to all work out. And absent that decision, you run off into chaos and you 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 lose control and you lose your ability to 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 logically reason your way through things which is a key a key asset and important thing that you need to have so you're just trying to logically recenter the other thing not so much with with tragedies of life and death but when bad things happen to you one of the things that it seems like ultra performers do is they create they come up with these creative alternative explanations, creative alternative explanations. So what is a creative alternative explanation? Well, here's an example. It's, it's like, let's, it could be as simple as, you know, you're in a sales situation and this account that you really, really wanted, it was going to be this huge account and it was going to you know, pay you all this money and then you lose the account. Well, it's one decision to go, oh, that's terrible. I must have messed things up. I'm a horrible salesperson or my company just can't deliver and we're not up to date or we're not up to par. That is an explanation it's easy to spin out into. Another one is to go, yeah, you know, 
God must have a plan here. And who knows, maybe this customer would have would have ended up becoming the worst, most difficult customer that we've ever had. And we would have spent way more time on it and we wouldn't have been able to deliver what they needed. And, you know, I'm sure that God is just kind of looking out for me or the universe is looking out for me, whatever you want to say. But it's, or it's like if you have a flat tire, you can say, oh, I have the worst luck in the world. Or you can also say, oh, you know, maybe this protected me from a car accident that would have happened down the road. And I, you know, I'd rather have a flat tire. So that's a creative alternative explanation. But the point here is step one is pause, even if for a split second for perspective and recenter as much as possible logically. So that's step one. And then I think you're going to see how uh, the rest of these steps, again, play a lot to logic, but then, and then we will move back into emotion. So step number two is list out all of the options. Step two is a brainstorm. It's a a mind dump. This is, again, something that we learned at Southwestern. So when we were when we would be selling books, these you know bad things would happen. We would run into problems and we eat problems for breakfast. We we were taught to say that all the time is then your response to that is to list out all potential options because that immediately moves moves you from a place of victimhood to a place of power, or it at least starts that migration. It starts that transformation because when I feel like things are happening to me, I have no control. I, I am I am in an uncontrollable situation. And to some extent, that is true. You are in a situation that may have come about not through your own choices. But living in a place of victimhood is very dangerous and operating in a place of victimhood is very dangerous. And so to transition out of that, one of the things that we do is you just come up with all the possible options that you can because now you suddenly are are giving yourself power by coming up with creative solutions and list them all out. Like everything is on the table and you might literally need to write out a list because it, it, it gives you confidence that things are gonna be okay and it lets you go, okay, this is where we're at. And also it's it's helpful to, to creatively brainstorm and potentially if there's people around you, include them and go, okay, how are we gonna handle this? What are what, How are we gonna respond? And it immediately helps you kind of, again, center and it also causes you to think creatively rather than running off into the helter-skelter of chaos, which you may have been thrust into. And it's sort of like you're propelled and launched into this chaos and you need to sort of stop and go, okay, let's 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 brainstorm here for a second and let's see what our options are. So that's step two is list out all the options. Step three, and this is more of a reminder, is to think long-term. Think long-term long term the tendency especially in emotional situations of urgency is to go immediately to the short term our in, in fact our general tendency in life is to default to the urgency calculation what matters right here and right now now in a situation of life and death you sometimes need to do that and it's not that urgency is bad it's just that urgency is dominating if you don't intentionally make the long-term calculation, you just listed out all these options and you need to think through what is the long-term impact of those options. Because here's the thing, thinking back to Gary's story, the decision to ground planes immediately, if you make that as a short-term decision, that, that that's in the short term, you go, we can't do that. That's going to cost us millions of dollars. 
right? If you only evaluate the impacts of urgency, then you go, that we can't make that decision. That's going to cost us millions of dollars today. But when you make the significance calculation, you go, well, but the likelihood of the lives, potentially hundreds or even thousands of lives that could be saved by that decision, now that gives you the context. It gives you the counterbalancing force of significance to the urgency that helps you make the right decision and go, no, even if it costs us millions of dollars, there's potentially thousands and lives here at stake. That's the decision that we have to make. And so you have to think long-term. Sometimes uh, I refer to that personally as the trajectory test. It's one of the biggest differences in successful people and everybody else is that successful people don't evaluate a decision in the context of just one time. They think about what if I made this decision over and over and over, or what would be the what is the long term impact of this? Right? It's kind of like you don't get you don't become overweight or obese from eating dessert one time, but you know that if you make that decision once, you're likely to make it again and again and again. And the more times you make it, it's like what is the impact of that? So just think long term and you know, remind yourself of the significance calculation and, and know that in the heat of the moment, you're often going to be pulled in urgency. And in life and death, sometimes that is, is a necessary thing, right? You have to just go, you, you know, you're, if you're in a, a decision-making mode of survival, then you probably do need to be making decisions on urgency. But most of us on any given day, our decisions are not life and death. They're not a matter of survival. They're a matter of success which means you have the luxury of making the long-term significance calculation or consideration. So do that, number three. Number four, do a logical backtest. Do a logical backtest. So this one comes directly from Henry Bedford, CEO of the Southwestern Family Companies, another mentor of mine, business partner. And whenever we're looking at you know financial things or, or making decisions that affect the business, is he will always say, well, let's do a back test, which kind of seems weird, right? Because you're saying, well, we're, this is all about the future. Like, what does it have to do? Like, we're talking about changing things. But the, the discipline here is so powerful is that you say, well, we already have the benefit of real, accurate, actual data from the past is you can often take that data and say, all right, if we just change a few of these assumptions, Let's just see how it would have panned out in real time because the, the, the beauty about actual data and past data is that it, it, has the, it accounts for the reality of unexpected things. Like every business goes through unexpected expenses. You lose people. You, you, you make shifts in strategy. And so there's impacts on revenues and expenses that you can't really predict and looking at past data already has some of that baked into it. So backtesting, if you have, again, if you have the luxury of a little bit of time, you go do that because you can see how, okay, if we just make these adjustments in a few of these assumptions, what would have been the impact on the past? So that's step four is do a logical backtest. Step five is do a forecast. So then do a forecast and say, okay, if we make this decision, this is more financially here. I'm talking about, you know, in a business, it's the same as step three, really thinking longer term and doing the trajectory test. But if you can, in step five, we're going to put numbers to it. So you take, you take an idea, a concept and you say, okay, let's, and, and, and let's talk about financially because 
it makes sense. It's easy to get our mind around. Like one of the things Henry also says all the time is he says, figure out how you're going to spend $1. Okay, let's just say you generate $1 in revenue. How are you going to divide up that dollar? And then forecast it out into the future to where, you know, what what are we going to do when we have $10 and $100 and $1,000 and a $1 million and $10 million and $100 million? And if you can figure out how to make a profit on that first $1, then when you forecast it forward, you're going to always make a profit. And so that is a really powerful way of thinking and you know something that he's developed in the experience over years and years of starting multiple different companies and one of the things that's fascinating and to me is many times we've come up with different ideas and Henry has said well go ahead and forecast that out 5 or 10 years and there's been times where I've been kind of like you know, just kind of upset or annoyed by it. I'm like, well, why do we have to do that? We know like this is what it is. But sure enough, when you forecast it out five or 10 years, things start to look differently. So do that, create a logical forecast. And now, you know, we all do it. All of us that anybody who's, you know, mentors directly with Henry, we always know that if we're going to bring an idea to him, one of the first things he's going to say is, okay, show me the back test and show me the forecast. And so you just, you know, we get in the habit of just doing this and it's really, really powerful especially you know here from a financial perspective it's powerful but it's also powerful even if you're just talking about a decision that you can't put numbers and logic to is you think through okay what would be the best possible scenario and what would be the worst possible scenario right and oftentimes our fear goes away and here's where we're going to start transitioning from logic a little bit back to emotion is when we do that forecast and you go here's what's likely to happen and here's the best possible, but then also now is when you start to look at the worst possible thing that can happen because often what you realize now that you're in a place of logic, now it is good to evaluate the worst possible scenario because what you often realize is you go, hey, the worst possible thing here is that we fail and it's not that big of a deal. But if you come up with the worst possible scenario as step one, before you pause for perspective, then what happens is you're not actually logically thinking through a worst possible scenario. You're emotionally coming up with worst possible scenarios. And that's where you're coming up with like crazy conspiracy theories and you're 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 taking an isolated incident and making it permanent and pervasive and it starts to make you feel hopeless. So that's why you have to kind of come to a place of recentering logically first. And now we're going to sort of transition back into some of the more emotional elements because you not every decision should be made with just logic. Logic should be a part of every decision that you make, but not every decision should be made on just pure logic. That's at least you know my personal belief. So now you're going to go, oh well, you know what? Worst case scenario, it's it's probably not going to be that bad. We're likely to just fail, right? But we can we can live with failure. We failed before, and we've we've figured it out. So that's step five: is do the forecast. Step six, now that you've, you, you're, you've paused for perspective, you're logically recentered, you've listed out options, you've reminded yourself to think long-term, you've actually gone backwards and tested, and you've gone forwards and tested, and now you kind of have a logical picture, a logical set of options. So these last four steps are really about, okay, now how do we decide and actually zero in on and hone in on what is the the best decision available to us at that moment. So step six is to evaluate the multipliers. Evaluate the multipliers. 
What does that mean? You multiply time by spending time on things today that create more time tomorrow. And that is a key difference in how multipliers think compared to everybody else. And part of the thinking when it comes to multiplying your time is realizing that there are certain things that you can do that don't create linear results, they create exponential results. How? Because they work synergistically together with other things that you're doing over the long term. They're not so evident and obvious in the short term, but they are often in the long term. So when I say evaluate the multipliers, so now what you've done is you've listed out all these options and you're looking at these options, but you're looking at them in the isolated instance of just this one difficult decision. Now what you want to do is you want to place that in the context of everything else that's already happening around you. And the big, the big question here that you, you just ask yourself is you say, okay, of each of these options, so you go through each option, and then you're basically going to say, if I make this decision, is it going to naturally enhance the other things that I'm doing, or is it going to distract from the other things that I'm doing? Is it naturally going to enhance the other things that I'm doing, or is it going to distract from the other things that I'm doing? Um, I, here's a good example, again, just thinking about sales. One of the great multipliers in the world of sales is referrals. Now, if you if you say, if, if your whole philosophy on sales is just um, numbers, 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 volume, 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 which is something we very much believe in and we champion the idea of volume, and it's it's a lot of success in sales has to do with sheer quantity, but at some point, there's a point of diminishing returns. If you say, I don't have time to spend 30 minutes with somebody getting referrals because I need to get on the phone and I need to cold call for those 30 minutes. Well, that doesn't make any sense because spending the 30 minutes with the one person that you have a relationship with to get referrals from is, yes, it's a cost of 30 minutes, but it's going to produce results much faster in the future. That's an example of a permission to invest 30 minutes because of the multiplicative effect over the long term. Every decision can be evaluated that way. As you say, okay, I, in, in the context of the other things happening around me, in the, the, because if I just evaluate the decision of should I spend 30 minutes making another sales call or getting a referral, if I just look at that as an isolated instance, it's like, well, I'm more likely to make an immediate sale perhaps from making more sales calls. But when you look at it through the lens of significance over long term, you go, well, even if I give up 30 minutes here of prospecting time, I'm, it's going to cut my curve in the future, right? It's going to amplify my results later. That's a multiplier. Referrals are a multiplier. So it always makes sense or usually makes sense to spend the time to get quality referrals from people that you know, not to say, oh, I'm too busy to get referrals. That is sort of the dumbest thing that somebody could say. Um, and it, But you'd be surprised that mentally, it's sometimes easier to get into mode of just, you know, dial, 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 or knock, 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 knock. And there's, there is some value, especially when you're first beginning in sales, to doing that for the purpose of establishing the habits of urgency and volume and quantity and numbers. But once you have the habits of urgency and quantity and numbers, um, then it always, or usually, almost always, is going to make time to invest that time to, to get referrals. Well, 
again, that happens with everything. And you, and you simply say, is this decision going to amplify, multiply, you know, enhance, add to, create the likelihood of exponential results, or is it just going to distract or destruct or take away from other things? And, um, you know, a lot of that is a, is a consideration of how big your team is and what resources you have and where you at in your life cycle as, as of a business and where you at in your personal career life cycle and how much money you have and all, all of these things sort of factor into it. But whenever you make a decision, it's always kind of good to go, okay, which of these decisions are going to naturally enhance and amplify and multiply the other things that we're doing and add to it? And which of these are going to maybe you know, take away or, or, or cannibalize or hurt or just going to be a sheer distraction? Right, like if Southwestern Consulting, we're obviously in the business of sales consulting and and speaking and coaching. And if we suddenly said, "Hey, we're gonna we're gonna you know make unicorns, fluffy unicorns, and sell them because we think we can make money doing that," well, what does fluffy unicorns does it does that somehow amplify what we're doing? If it does, then yeah, we should probably do that. But if you can't find a direct connection to how it enhances and adds to, then somehow it's it's probably taking away and it's it's maybe a decision you don't want to make. So evaluate what you're doing here is you're extending the context. You're extending the context from this isolated instance of a decision to now out to what's happening around you in your environment. So evaluate the multipliers, you know, multiplier good and multiplier bad. Um, and hopefully that b- helps you. All of this is about helping you find clarity and confidence in making decisions on limited information in difficult or turbulent turbulent times. So that's number six. Number seven, and this is a great piece of advice um, that I got f- from another mentor. And he said, every decision should basically pass the feel-good test. It should pass the feel-good test. So now you've evaluated all these things logically and in the context and you're recentered. And then at the when you start to hone in on a decision and you go, okay, I'm about to hire this person or we're about to you know, start up this new endeavor or we're about to stop doing that or we're about to whatever, is you just got to sort of, pass, does it pass the feel-good test? Can you feel good uh, about it? Because if you can't feel good about it, then you're probably not going to be bought into that decision. The people around you, if they don't feel good about it, then there's resentment. If if you don't, um, you know, if, if it can't pass the feel good test, it causes problems in the long term for for you and for the people around you. To now, to some extent, you you can't always make decisions that make everyone feel good, particularly in the short term. But it should be a part of your decision making consideration, right? It should be a, a process to go. Okay, can I at least can I feel good about this? Is a, is a great step to include, and that is step seven. Is is does this decision or option pass the feel good test? Step eight is the transparency test. The transparency test, and this is a, a great one. Is just it's another sort of gut check question, kind of a an ill, you know, an un, or an emotional, more illogical thing, but just a just a gut check question is, does it pass the transparency test? And what that means is, very often you have to make decisions for people around you if you're a leader, and not everybody else is going to have all the information that you have. And this, again, kind of comes back to you may not always be able to make a decision that makes everyone feel good, but ask yourself the question, 
if the people around me all had the same amount of information that I had, would they have been likely to make the same decision that I'm going to make? Does it? Does this decision up, stand up to the scrutiny of transparency? That doesn't mean you have to tell everybody why you made the decision necessarily. I mean, it depends on your values and your organization and things, but um, a lot of times full transparency can cause problems um, and people don't need full transparency. Uh, they need trust. And what really matters is trust. And you don't necessarily have to have full transparency to have trust. You can have trust without full transparency, but for you as a leader making a decision, you might say, if everyone had all the information I had, would they likely kind of go along with the same decision I'm making? Would they say, yeah, you know, given this new information, I probably would have said the same thing. That's just another thing to, to think about. And then finally, number nine, and this is huge, and people don't do this, but it is so important, is to pray. It's to pray. Or if you don't like the word pray, use the word meditate. But for me, it's pray. Is once you have you know, kind of made your decision or you've narrowed it down to a few options, pray about it and actually ask God and say, what do you think? Have I done everything that I, I know to do in evaluating these options? Have I gathered as much as I can? And what is the right decision? And here's what I am thinking. And just see what comes back to you. And again, if you don't believe in God, the universe, however you want to say it, but, but for me, I'm asking God to say, here's a decision. We're thinking about hiring this person. We're thinking about this new thing. We're thinking about whatever. And don't be afraid to pray. Nine decisions or nine steps for making difficult decisions in times of turbulence. I hope it helps you if you are experiencing ever in your life one of those times. Well, that about wraps up the Action Catalyst podcast for this week. If you haven't yet, please log in to whatever your favorite medium is to listen to the show and both rate this podcast and leave a comment as that helps new prospective listeners determine if the show's really a good fit for them. If you enjoy this podcast, please make sure to subscribe, leave a review, and screenshot this episode to share with your friends on social media. Make sure to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Action Catalyst and subscribe to our video podcast on YouTube. Thanks for listening.